Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. This week in Crossing the Chasm, we're joined by Dr. Dave Louie of the University of Houston. And we're going to take some time to explore a topic that is incredibly meaningful, not simply to medical education, but to really all levels of higher education, which are the concepts of sponsorship and mentorship. And while we're going to have the opportunity to discuss ultimately what structural components are necessary for institutions and organizations to be able to help advance and increase the number of historically disenfranchised and underrepresented minorities in medicine and healthcare in general. We'll also spend a significant amount of time really considering what can one individual do, because ultimately what we're trying to do is get find ways for everyone to get involved in DEI and understand that it can be personal, it can be uh, local, uh, and it's imminently possible in ways that we may or may not have imagined previously. So with that, we'll get started with our podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Dave Louie, a professor at, I, I never get your professorships right, and so I always, I'm never sure if it's associate professor or full, uh, do you you carry on so many titles at this point in time, I, I get lost, <laughs> but, but um, uh, professor at the University of Houston in the School of uh, education. Uh, and uh, as more importantly to me and for our listeners is Dave is my uh, very dear cousin uh, who most graciously agreed to come on here. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of his uh, training as well as uh, his research topics because that would take up the entire podcast. But uh, to say that uh, he is well, not, not only well-traveled, but highly educated um, in a number of, uh, from a number of different uh, organizations is uh, is really underselling uh, his commitment to higher education. Uh, and so welcome, Dave. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So uh, before we jump in and get this, one of the things that we do in this podcast is, and focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion, is to understand that, you know, quite honestly, in, in part to create empathy, but also in part to provide vision for um, others, you know, who may want to, to follow a similar path. We love people to share their stories. So why don't you take a couple of minutes and tell us your story in terms of how you started where you started, what got you into higher education, and how you landed where you did at U of H. Okay, thank you. Again, thank you for having me on this. Um, you know, my story is, is so windy, but it really starts uh, in Trinidad in the Caribbean. You know, born and raised there, went to high school there, and always had, you know, you know, like like many islanders, I guess, dreams of going abroad and studying abroad and, and not even really knowing what that means in terms of how your life journey twists and turns. So um, fortunate enough to, to be able to go to Morehouse College in undergrad. So I went to an HBCU 
Um, and I think it was there that so many different uh, multicultural uh, points of awareness occurred in terms of being black, but also in terms of being Caribbean and, and that intersectionality that occurs that, you know, oftentimes, and a lot of what I do in my, my research with, with uh, Afro-Caribbean individuals is that invisibility because you're looked upon as black uh, and that's just the, the ethnicity or I'll, I'll even just say the skin tone, but um, there's a whole cultural piece that, that, that comes with that. Um, and, and I think that was sort of where a lot of where my, my um, excitement uh, was birthed in terms of higher education. Charles Willey was a professor at Harvard and he came to speak and, um, and, and I went to hear him uh, speak and it, it just blew me away. Um, and uh, he eventually became my mentor when I went to Harvard. And um, understanding the multifacetedness of blackness um, is so underscored, right? A lot of times it's, it, it's very bifurcated, black, white, and, and, and there's this cultural assumption that takes place a lot of times. Um, I, and I like to throw it on, on the other side, talking about if you told an Irishman he was English, there would be an entire fight, right? But just saying that they're white is not nuanced enough to understand both the culture that is within the person who may have a skin color. Anyway, that being said, ended up going uh, to Cambridge, did my master's. When I went back to New York, I taught in the public school system. Um, but I, what, what really got me into higher education by the end was teaching at a bridge program at Columbia University called the Double Discovery Center. And I taught math there and it was for, and this was the terminology used then, Inner city youth of promise. Um, and I saw these students who may have never had the opportunity to be on an Ivy League campus, watch their eyes in full amazement, and then within a few weeks, embrace themselves on that campus. And we don't think about that in higher education, how often many of our campuses um, uh, inadvertently set up barriers with individuals who may not have history with higher education or that transaction or that endeavor or in that journey or whatever. So then of course I ended up getting my doctorate at Texas A&M to my cousin's chagrin, but, um, that is where I really got into understanding that DEI work, DEI lives has to be a more nuanced conversation beyond just, okay, I've hired a few people who may look like this or fit a category. You have to understand two things. One, we are a multicultural society one, and two, our workforce is going to be multicultural. The question becomes, do we in higher education provide the spaces 
one, for access to higher education to certain groups, and two, do we provide opportunities for success? Getting through the door is one thing, but what occurs once you're through the door is a completely other thing. And when you understand that many of these institutions, and I'm going to go back to Harvard, 1636, and I say this to folks, the first institution of higher education was Harvard University, 1636. The first women's university was 1835. The first black university was 1837. That's 200 years of white men being able to engage in the educational transaction. That's social capital. And what we don't understand is those things still exist today in terms of the fabric of our institutions so we could recruit, but do we retain? And it's not just a question of money and all of that. It's a question of culture. And that's something that, that for me, I engage in all of my research. So that's kind of my story in terms of how I got to this place and realizing that I was part of that. Whether it was at the HBCU when I was not looked upon as an African-American or whether that was traversing any of these institutions to this day as a person of color and seeing statues and edifices and, and building names that don't reflect anything of a culture that I could relate to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there in terms of my story, but that's kind of how I got here. It's uh, obviously I know it and know it intimately, and that uh, it's wonderful how you frame that up, and you you create a nice segue for me because the the next obvious question is well wait a second, um, Dr. Louis may have doctorate in front of his name, but is a PhD, and what does he have to do with medicine? But the simple fact of the matter is that obviously medicine starts with medical school, which is still mm -hmm. higher education, mm -hmm. and you've done a quite a bit of research with respect to um, what you highlighted, right? Which is workforce is changing, our population is changing, uh, and there are myriad of uh, not only uh, academic work, but quite honestly work that's been done within healthcare to really identify that um, as a society, we know that there's health inequity, there are healthcare disparities, um, you know, that are identified for, you know, it's really non-white versus white. And one of the, the issues is to overcome, to overcome healthcare disparities is quite honestly to change the dynamic of the workforce, is to really look for individuals who are more reflective of the population. You've spent uh, quite a bit of your own research time um, really investigating what it takes in the undergraduate space to be able to get individuals into higher education. And one of the areas, again, and DEI has been mentioned over and over again, really has to do with mentorship and what does that look like. Um, some people just assume, oh, well, hey, I've got a mentee and so I'm helping. But you've highlighted that there are certain aspects of the mentorship relation, the mentor-mentee relationship that's actually critical to facilitating growth of individuals into higher education. Can you tell a, uh, a little bit more about that and, and your thoughts on it? One of the things that when we talk about individuals who historically, so let's just say first-generation college students, 
they want to go to college. They know there's this thing called college. They know that they, quote, unquote, I'm just going to use this language here. I'm going to get a better job. You know, I'd love to be a doctor. There are going to be two things that, that, that really occur. One, when last have they seen somebody who's a black doctor? And what does that mean psychologically in terms of not just trust, but in could I attain that, right? That, that attainability. Um, the second thing is all the different nuances that occur on the college campus in terms of navigating it. Here's a classic example. I'm taking four classes, but it's 12 credit hours. What, what is a credit hour? What is even credit? Uh, what do you mean I have to complete 126, 129 credit hours? It's a language they have no concept of, and they're supposed to engage with this and be successful in it and do it. And this is just at the college level. And what is a core course? And what is an elective? That in itself is language never utilized prior to getting on campus. And that's for a lot of people, right? Um, and so a, a, a huge part of navigating it is capital, social capital, understanding what a college campus is, far less the aspect of me being the only person of color in a class, depending on the institution, the only person in that major, um, somebody saying, well, I want to be a doctor. And you go, you're the first person I've ever met of color who's even said that. And then that person, let's say, goes over to, let's say, any particular medical facility. I'm not seeing one person of color. So there's a lot of social disconnect that takes place that for someone who may be generationally into it or doing it their entire lives, may not even think about it. And so for the mentors, one of the things that uh, uh, they need to be cognizant of, especially if they have a first generation, uh, a student of color, where maybe within their, um, their community, they've never engaged with anyone except somebody giving them, let's say, a shot, right? They see them once a year, every six months, hopefully at minimum, you know, there's no interaction. There's an understanding of what medicine should be in terms of helping and, and being of service. But what does it mean to navigate from the undergraduate to medical school? And what courses do I have to take? And we hold up, I don't have to major in biology or do I have to major in biology? I mean, simple navigation that mentors could take the time to just sit down and have conversations besides, yes, you could do it and, and sort of give that flag. Let me share this last real quick story to talk about what occurs with many diverse populations. Years ago, when I was at a different institution, I'm not gonna name it, my wife was teaching at a school uh, four miles away from that institution, black neighborhood. And she's introducing herself the first day of class. She said, hi, my name is Mrs. Louie. My, my husband is Dr. Louie, and he works at the university. And a black boy in the back, this is fourth grade, puts his hand up and says, you married a white guy? And the implications of that is that he has never in his life, living four miles from a university, ever interacted with 
a black individual with the title doctor. So there's this social gap, this, this cultural gap, this, this exposure gap that is taking place that is invisible. And so when we talk about just getting to college and having the aspirations to go to medical school, we're not just talking about getting an A in uh, organic, chemist organic chemistry. We're talking about how do we help mentor that young man or woman to understand how to navigate the college space and how to prepare themselves for medical school. So that's a long answer, but we have to look at that social capital gap. And hopefully that answered. I think it does. But one of the things that goes along with mentorship, and again, in your research, and, and we're going to put in for the, the people that want to look into the research access to, to Dave's papers, but one of the things you discussed is cross-cultural mm -hmm. um, mentorship, because the simple fact of the matter is we already don't have, we don't have enough uh, physicians of color mm -hmm. uh, to be, like, there's no way to be able to mentor all of these people to call do we we have full-time jobs. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so what are the key A, discuss a little bit about what cross-cultural uh, mentorship is, but then again, what do you highlight and what are the, some of the key components? And you know, you mentioned the social social capital gap. I think that's important to sort of make sure that the obviously the mentor goes in with the understanding that that mm -hmm. exists. Um, because that would have some implications on um, the the mentor-mentee relationship. So one of the things when we talk about cross-cultural mentoring is that first and foremost, we have to be aware of and not be, and I'll, I'm going to go here, not be offended by and not be startled by and not be taken aback when we start looking at social inequity in, on the largest scale in society. We have to understand that the realities of black populations and Latino populations and Asian populations, uh, immigrant populations, uh, uh, Polish populations are not universal, okay? Uh, are there universality in terms of family and love and music and, yeah, great, but, the experience of them navigating this place called society is completely different. And the histories are completely different. Um, understand it was not until 1954 that schools were still segregated and that individuals were having books in black schools that were 10, 15 years outdated. That's an educational gap. And understand that continues generationally. And then when we start talking about funding education and all that, we start talking about those gaps even more. So I, I say that in that as you become a mentor, you have to be open to understanding that there are differences in perceptions, differences in understanding, differences in lived experiences of different cultural groups. And that when you're engaging in conversations with individuals from a different culture, one of the major things as a mentor, I would say, is listen. Listen, because their perception of 
the world is completely different from yours. Now, you're going to bring your expertise to the table and share what you know about the landscape of the medical field. And, you know, I've been a doctor for 25 years and here's what I've done. And da, 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 da. But at the same time, understand that that is a complete, maybe, maybe a completely foreign perspective to that individual. And that individual may or may, and it doesn't always have to be a deficit, but understand that when you're mentoring that person, that they may have a completely different lived experience. Medical school, their medical ex school experience might be completely different from your medical school experience and how they approach medicine and what they've seen in their community and what they think is a priority in their community may not be something that you consider a priority in your practice. So listening, being open to understanding different cultures and I'll be honest, educating yourself to have a, a, a more nuanced understanding of the history of the United States, putting that into context, and you know, more, more uh, uh, appropriately, wherever you may be operating, so you could know what are the differences with individuals from different cultural groups who may you may be interacting with and mentoring. The second thing I would say, the last thing I would probably say to that is, if you're aware of those differences and understand the social inequities that occur as a result of that, then it should be incumbent upon somebody in a position of privilege to outreach to someone who may be coming up in the ranks to really help them navigate that medical space. And I'll be honest, it could be somebody from a different culture, um, or it could be somebody from your same culture. Oftentimes for me, even as a black professor, I will meet a, a, a black graduate student and just kind of reach out to make sure how they're doing or whatever, because it just creates that bridge. And so I think a large part of the mentoring process is the outreach that we do from our positions as a mentor to our mentees. Dr. Lee, if you don't mind me asking a question, um, kind of looking at it from the reverse, from the mentee side. So about seven years ago, my church in Boston, I, I helped uh, found a mentorship program, professional mentorship, because in Boston, we had all sorts of students going to great schools and we had all sorts of professionals doing, you know, all sorts of amazing work in their fields. And it was there was this huge disconnect of students that want to learn more and we had the professionals that could do it. And so basically the program is to help facilitate those relationships. And like one of the things that that I'd heard when some of the feedback was the mentors were essentially saying like, oh, this new generation, they don't know how to ask. Like, you know, when I was coming up, we would find someone in, in leadership and seek them out and ask, you know, to, for them to mentor us. But nowadays, as you know, these guys, guys, people coming to the company don't do that. Um, and I'm just wondering, it, it made me think a little bit what you're talking about earlier with this not having the concept of language of, you know, academic language that's similar, like. Do you feel like maybe these potential mentees don't have this the language of mentorship? So they don't even know that this exists, those opportunities, or to be proactive in, in finding that? I think it goes both ways. The first thing that the mentor should realize is there is a generational gap, and the way they operate is different. Therefore, my question to the mentor is, what have you done to upgrade your own software, software to approach someone from Gen Z, from the millennial generation or whatever, 
part of it is you also have to upgrade. Well, if they don't approach, what am I going to do to help bridge that gap, right? So there's that part. In terms of, quote unquote, the younger generation, and, and I'll tell you, even as a professor, I, I, I wrangle with this because I see them on their phones. I see them plugged up. They have the earbuds in. So even saying good morning, they don't hear you. It's, it's, it's a different vibe. And so um, on one hand, I don't know if they don't know the language, but what I've realized is the way in which they interact with each other and they interact with the world is completely different from anything we've seen before. And I think the COVID period really exacerbated that because we really got into our technology at that juncture. That's where we were learning. That's where we were interacting. Um, you know, you had a Zoom call and you could click off your screen so there's no eye contact. There's... So I think there's a lot of that interactional piece that, and I'm going to put it here, we as mentors have to try and fill that gap. Because, and, and I'm putting the responsibility back on the mentors and they're already going, well, I have all this work to do as a mentor already, right? <laughs> but it's kind of like your patient coming through the door. You're not going to have a patient be in pain. And then you look at them and say, so what do you think I should prescribe? Right? So part of it is knowing that you have to come to the table with something more. You know, if you have a patient who's been, you look at their records and they've been through a number of times, you could have that conversation with them. But if it's somebody who's never experienced, they've never been to the doctor, it's a different conversation. But think about this generation. I'm not saying, again, I'm not trying to say deficient, but if we kind of have the idea that, or the notion that they may be coming with a different set of interactional skills, how do we as mentors try to approach that? And that's kind of where I would put that. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. Uh, you, actually, one other question, though, this does make me think of is as you talk about how they have a different set of skills or language. Do you feel like there's also a responsibility on the mentor to almost learn a new language, learn the language of Gen Z so that does like mentorship have to look different than maybe it looked 10, 15, 20 years ago? Um, you know, I think there's a point where you embrace your generation as well as their generation. And you could even um, utilize that difference as a conversation maker. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll say, you know, back in my day, we used to do this to do this. What do y'all do nowadays to do that? I see y'all have your app and they laugh or whatever because you use the word app and it's not really an app or whatever it is. Utilize that difference to create the conversation. I know you all are doing this and want to do this, how do y'all go about doing it? Asking them a question and getting them engaged in the conversation, how would you navigate that? Hey, how do you find out about medical school? Tell me, how do you search? How did you, when you were looking at colleges, how did you choose the college that you chose? How did you go about that? Remember back in, in our day, we had to write an essay, you know, it, I could sit down and dictate my essay on my iPhone and let it transcribe it for me. And then I could probably fix it if I really feel like, or I could get AI to fix it. It's not that they don't have the same 
let me be clear. Not that they don't have the same ideas and aspirations that we had, it's just packaged differently. And so what we have to do is figure out from them, because that also gives them value because they become teachers of us and we become teachers of them. And then we'll find a common language. And I think that's part of the problem when we talk about mentoring in this global sense, we always see it going one way. Mentorship is a two-way street. I've learned so much from my mentees, almost to the point there are times when I go, you know what? I think I learned more from them than they learned from me, right? It has to be an ongoing relationship that you build where you're able to ask questions of them about how they operate. Because the way you operate may be obsolete. Even though you're in this space and you can navigate this space, the way they operate is completely different. Now, that also means that you also have to share with them how this space operates and teach them about the nuances of that so that they could adapt that into their behavior or into their actions. So, you know, mentoring is a beautiful thing. And I'll go back to that, just mentoring in general and then cross uh, cross-cultural it takes a lot because you really have to listen and you have to ask and you have to put yourself in a position of vulnerability, right? And there will be times when it's uncomfortable. You're going to hear stories from them that's uncomfortable. You're going to sometimes even feel inept, like, oh gosh, I don't know if I really want to do this. But if you get over those humps through time and you really build that relationship, then you're going to you're going to see it blossom not just in the person but in the field. Now, thanks for that Dave. I, I, there was one other piece that I wanted to ask and it it really is getting into one of your articles that that I read and was it, it, I can't say I was struggling with it but I was trying I was like how does this apply itself in the medical school area because again you're a teacher in liberal mm -hmm. arts. It, you know, medicine is a very, <laughs> I don't want to call it stodgy, but, but we have we have history and it's science, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the, the articles that you wrote uh, on was about the concept of, again, going back to undergraduates and criticality. Mm -hmm. You're in undergraduate to challenge assumptions, right? And the mentor-mentee relationship, one of the things you, you wrote about was, well, you have to be prepared for them to chat like you have to be not only prepared as a mentor but actually welcome them mm -hmm. challenging your your concept of like why does this work mm -hmm. and at first i was like oh yeah totally makes sense except i'm in hard science <laughs> i've got i do have organic chemistry where mm -hmm. The, you know, the answer is what it is. I mm -hmm. am in calculus where the answer is what it is. I am in, you know, it, how do you, you know, and in many instances it is, well, this is the way that we practice medicine. Mm -hmm. How does, how do you take that concept of criticality where you, it's accepting critical thought and quite honestly encouraging it? Because one of the mm -hmm. things and I know I'm mixing a lot of different ideas, but I was really fascinated by this was one of the 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 mentees that you highlighted was, well, they're the mentor, so they're right. They're the mm -hmm. teachers, so they're right. So I shut up mm -hmm. and they talk. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what you wrote was that 
that's actually not like you, the mentors need to encourage critical thought and critical mm -hmm. dialogue. How does that work in hard sciences? Or do you have thoughts with respect? to Yes, that? I have a lot of thoughts in hard <laughs> sciences. And this is one of the things that I share. I, and I'm going to put it specifically to medicine. The science is the science, period. Ibuprofen operates in this way in the body, period. How do you administer? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how different populations, how different practices, how you may have a practice, and I'm going to just use Houston here. How do you have a practice in the Heights? And then how do you have a practice in Third Ward? It's the same ibuprofen. It's the same illnesses that we're treating, but maybe it's a question of how do we approach the populations which we are trying to serve? Um, you know, water is H2O. It's going to be H2O. There, there's no conversation about H2O. And so what I think when it comes to medical school would be, and, and this is coming from outside of the medical field from my perspective, you know, bedside manner, you know, something like that. Or how do we set up, um, uh, uh, how do we advertise, you know, and, and that's where we're starting to get. Medicine is not just necessarily the, the, the pills and the needles and, and the tongue depressants right. and all that. That's going to happen in third ward and that's going to happen in the heights. The question becomes, how do we now administer this? So what I would say to the mentors is the science is the science and you could argue with a mentee about approaches about why we use this or maybe what I would say in terms of criticality where you would formulate that would be in let's say in just a classroom where you're talking about um, we, we want to use this particular medicine in this particular situation why would you get them to critically think about why not other medicines why not why this dosage versus this dosage and get them to start thinking instead of just a robotic way of just, okay, ibuprofen and just write it down. So I think we, you know, let's go to the liberal arts, right? Let's, let's talk about English. Shakespeare is Shakespeare. Now your perception of Shakespeare could be whatever, but the line is a tu brute. And we have to decipher a tu brute, right? So in medicine, you have to respect the science. Now we could talk about how we administer that and that could be a social conversation or what type of doctor do I really want to be could be a conversation or what type of practice and debate whether private practice versus a group practice or hospital versus a clinic. Those are spaces where you can have those conversations about what type of physician do you want to be? How do you want to serve in this field? That's where that criticality comes in, where you could practice that and have those conversations. But I'm telling you, the, the medication remains the same. Your assessment remains the same. How you practice that is where I could see criticality become a really, because here's the deal. The worst thing you want is to have a highly qualified, brilliant doctor practicing medicine in a space that they're unhappy. 
because yeah. then they're not serving what they think they're serving. But if they can have these conversations about the entire field and get exposure to different areas and they may go, you know what? I really want to go to Uganda and, and do medicine over there in this way because that's where I feel I didn't want to be downtown in the medical center. That's where you can have conversations that include criticality. Yeah, and that and and absolutely challenging a, a lot of standard ways that we approach in terms of actual practice delivery. I I, I didn't think yeah. about that, but I really appreciate that thought. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the things that we're going to switch up for you is, uh, and we never actually let anybody know this, so nobody comes with a pre-planned question for anybody who wants to ask. Um, but we, at, we we always say, so what's your loaded question? And that comes back to, to, to me and Jay. If you have a question that's on your mind with respect to um, uh, with respect to keeping it relatively narrow, DEI and medicine or healthcare in general, what's your loaded question? Because we're we're here to answer uh, and and give honest responses to that. And so far, they've been pretty loaded. Uh, yes. <laughs> what you got for me, Dave? Oh, what's the loaded question? Um, oh gosh, I guess for me, when we think about DEI, the question specifically is how are we preparing our medical students, especially medical students of color, to navigate the entire level of coursework and was expected to be successful. And I, why I say that is because it goes back to my same conversation about college. When our students get through the doors, we feel that that is the success. Where really the success is assisting them, they still have to do the work, how do they understand where they are? And I think medical schools are probably, uh, I'll probably throw between medical school and law schools, are probably the, the, the most highly sought and prestigious and um, in all institutions, right? You know, you hear a lot of people, I wanna be pre-med, right? It's almost a status symbol. What are medical schools doing to have conversations with students on the undergraduate level? So I can only speak for my institution and what I gleaned from my own activities out. And I, I'm obviously no longer a medical student and I have pretty limited uh, um, interactions with my own medical school. Um, I will say, you know, in terms of, you know, first the formal. Uh, for those who don't know, there's something called the Student National Medical Association, or SNMA, um, that is a branch off of the National Medical Association, or the student arm of it. And the National Medical Association is a historically Black um, organized medical association. Uh, SNMA uh, typically ties in pretty closely to NMA in terms of not only programming activities and and, um, and in creating study cohorts at medical schools, um, but also sort of linking uh, into the National Medical Association to say, hey, look, you know, there's some mentors and mentees that that uh, are here and that you can access. 
Um, I, I will say, having gone to a predominantly white uh, institution, a state institution for my own medical education, uh, that um, your SNMA chapter is entirely dependent on the size of your medical school class. Uh, and so uh, if your medical school class is you and one other, um, then your SNMA chapter may not be the most active and you may not have access to even those resources. Uh, it's also dependent on where your location. Uh, I, I went to medical school in Houston. There, um, outside of the S, outside of the National Medical Association, there's a Houston Medical Forum. Um, that's actually a group of just interested uh, Black Houston physicians that are super intentional about that. Now, I don't know if the same exists for our Latinx <laughs> colleagues. Mm -hmm. I don't. I, I don't. I know that there are other associations like uh, the American Association of um, uh, Pacific Island Physicians or OPI. There's there's um, there are associations for Indian physicians, um, uh, Asian American physicians. There's there are a variety of different organizations. But to the point that you're making, I think that they are. It depends on where you go and how well resourced those institutions are because HBCUs almost by definition have them in terms of having networks to particularly to hook up um, uh, medical students to to mentees. Um, but then I look at, uh, again, I, I'm state of Texas and the University of Texas Medical Branch that had graduated the most number of uh, non-white physicians in the state of Texas. And so quite honestly, it attracts more students mm -hmm. <laughs> of color simply because they know, I'll, I know I'll find somebody there and yeah. I'll be able to, to, to find the network. And so uh, I, I, I wish, again, based on my own experience to be able to say that it's uh, as structured as it needs to be uh, I don't think it is, uh, and I think it's still pretty dependent on where you're going and what resources the schools have. And I think, you know, speaking of uh, capital, you know, social capital and what level of influence that has in terms of creating the physicians of the future, um, I, I think it's a huge area of opportunity because um, getting back to your earlier point uh, and the fourth grader, you uh, even I never recognize the impact. You know, I've been been in medicine for a number of years. I do a ton of outreach events and I have a ton of mentees, but you're right. It, it's 2023. I walk into a classroom. I introduce myself as Dr. Johnson and I still see three kids look at me as if I literally was Neil Armstrong and the first man to walk on the moon. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not the only one who represents that problem because I know that that my his, my uh, Latino colleagues hear the same thing. I, I discuss it with them and I hear the same thing. And I hear the same thing for other, you know, black and brown children. And so I think structurally, are we there? No. Can we continue to support organizations that do that? Yes. And then, you know, I, and I think that, um, uh, as you you shared it, I think for some of our mentors, it is really not only mentors of color, mm -hmm. but, you know, is to reach out and say, hey, I think you'd be a good mentor and I need you to join up with this group. And then, quite honestly, empower them with some of the cross-cultural mentorship tips that, <laughs> that you've given, because these are things that are important in order to build up, um, you know, groups to be able to do this and facilitate it and say, yes, I think you could be a great medical student because, 
your point's well taken. It's not, it, that's not a conversation that a lot of people are having and we've got to change that dynamic. Yeah. One of the things, I, and as you said, I just thought about one other aspect is how often do we strategize? And I say this as universities in general, right? And, and the medical schools that are attached to them. How often do we go into communities that are underserved and don't have access to us to have conversations with them. Um, you know, I just had a piece come out in the Journal of uh, Community Engagement and Higher Education, and we interviewed 27 Black uh, uh, leaders, uh, community leaders, about the level of engagement with their universities. And they were like, none. It was disastrous. Right. Um, and it's so so there's this this gap, this town gown non-relationship that is happening between universities. The medical schools that are attached the to these thing. institutions the are, 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 are just part and parcel of that same conversation. But we're looking at higher education continuing to build walls between themselves and especially underserved communities. And what happens is when we have individuals who come from those populations to college with aspirations, it then becomes an us and them, right? Yeah. And so I think there's so much work to, to, to build in terms of relationships with um, our institutions of higher education and our communities around us. I just wanna echo what you're saying and, and really this isn't just higher ed and isn't just for for healthcare, you know, recently I was talking to someone who was a social worker making a career change. I had made a, a career change myself, and that's why we were talking. I used to be a teacher, and I'm a program manager. Um, and when I was giving her some advice, and I was telling her, you know, that I relied on a lot of like my friends and my my social network to just give me some insights and advice into fields and and all these things. And this person really humbled me, and they were like, "Jay, like I'm from South LA. The people I went to high school with, my friends, my social network." They don't work in those fields. I don't know people in, in, in all these industries. So I don't have people to rely on to even just tell me what's out there, let alone what I, I could be good at. And it was it was really kind of eye-opening a reminder that, you know, I, I hopefully people, it's not only gonna be doctors, nurses, and and healthcare providers or leaders listening to this podcast, but you know, whoever, just I think hopefully they they have their ears open to think about the, the people around them and these underserved communities. That might be the only representation of different industries, different fields. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I did a, a talk a number of years ago um, and, and you know, it's probably taboo ever to talk about Cosby nowadays, but they were talking about the Cosby show, right? Because you had one, here's this black family. They had, what, four or five kids. Dad was a medical doctor. Wife was a lawyer. And I literally had uh, an individual share that that's, fiction. The fact that that occurs under one roof is literally a non-reality. So we, we even with the, 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 the uh, popularity of a show like that showing a family that went to college and went to med school and went to law school, they got married, they had kids, you know, they go to the grocery like everybody else and all of that good stuff. It, it It's still somewhere in our social psyche that that is not a reality. 
And so we have to really wonder how could we combat that? And I think the biggest combat is being present, being there. And, I, and I'm going to share this last example in terms of being present. One of the things that I do uh, weekly is I, I mentor at an elementary school. And I've been doing that for 19 years now. And I go and I read a book or I mentor a, a, a young man. And it's interesting, especially in the reading, when I'll go to a class and you know, every Friday I'm reading and I introduce myself at the beginning of the semester. Hi, I'm Dr. Louis, da, 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 da. I teach at X university. And so six weeks will pass. And then unequivocally, a black kid would walk up to me and say, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a professor at whatever university. And they're like, Oh, so even when you tell them that you are, you have to create trust. You have to be present. You have to be consistent. You don't do a, a medical show, a medical extravaganza twice a year in that community. The question is, are you present consistently in that community for them to finally develop a rapport with you to understand what you do? That takes a lot of time and resources. So when we talk about DEI and outreach, the question becomes time and resources. Are institutions willing to dedicate time and resources to DEI efforts, or is DEI efforts just an, <laughs> an, an, an arm of the institution so that some work can be done? And I'm going to kind of leave it like that, but it becomes, are we committed to DEI? And that means rolling up your sleeves, getting dirty, taking that extra time to mentor, taking that extra, you have to be committed to it. And it doesn't mean you have to do it every week, every week, every week, but whatever it is, make it consistent. Once a year is not consistent, twice a year is not consistent. Rotate it with your doctors that there's a conversation at a, 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 at a community center. You get 12 doctors and you say every month, somebody's gonna come and talk about their expertise at this community center for one hour. And if two people show up, great. And if 12 people show up, great. But it has to be consistent to the point where when two or three people benefit from that, they're gonna spread the word within their community. And then they're gonna bring their kids with them. And then, so it creates this ongoing, uh, DEI work is not always about the big event that you've taken the picture at. It's about being consistent within communities that are underserved. One, one last question to that, and I, I'd throw this both to, to you, Dr. Louie, and to Greg. Um, real practical speaking, like how would you, tell someone how they can find these opportunities, whether it's mentoring to elementary school or to medical students. Um, you know, a lot of times it's like, I have these ideas of what I wanna do, but I don't necessarily know how to start. So how do, how, was there any suggestions on how to find those opportunities? I am, I'm gonna use this one. I'm sure between where they work and driving home, there's an elementary school. There's your opportunity. I know it sounds really simple and it sounds, because what occurs is we're always waiting for the great machine and the great program for us to sign up. But here's the deal. 
walk into the elementary school, walk into the high school. They're going to say, hey, I want to volunteer. I want to come. I want to talk just once a month. Da, 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 da. I bet you they have a healthcare program. They're going to give you a form and they're going to say, you have to do a background check and you could come and volunteer once a month. Ta-da! There it is. It's that simple. Yeah. You know, and, and so part of what I try to share with folks is that the opportunities are there. The question is, do you want to do it? And if there's no opportunity, especially if you're a medical doctor, I know you have the mindfulness and the smarts to create the opportunity. Stop waiting for the opportunity. Make the opportunity. Well, I, I, I agree with you. It's, I, I do think it's that simple. And from the medical perspective, um, A, you are a doctor. You went to a medical school. They have an alumni center. You should call them. It takes. I mean, you. We think about all of the networks and looking for something external to ourselves. But you know, uh, before we got on the call, I was, uh, I was teasing Dave a little bit about his fraternity affiliation. I guarantee you, if you're in a fraternity or sorority, they have a mentorship outlet. You went to a medical school or your residency program. They have a mention. They they have an alumni network, and guaranteed as part of those alumni networks, there is one that is. Um, focused and there's nothing wrong whether you are a physician of color or you are somebody who is uh, who is from a privileged background and I consider myself from a privileged background still a physician uh, of color but a physician not of color who just wants to be part of the solution in terms of getting more non-white underrepresented minorities into into medical school and into medical practice there's nothing wrong with your calling up and saying, hey, I'm looking for an opportunity to mentor and I would love to mentor a student of color. That's not a hard thing to say. And I guarantee you the school, if they haven't thought about it, guess what you've just done? You've done exactly what David just said, mm -hmm. which was you've created an opportunity. The school goes, oh, wait, you you want to do this? Yes, I, I am now holding you school accountable for helping me to get connected with that student or those students. You know, for me, you know, I, I go to my state medical association meetings and I, I go find the medical students. They're not hard to find because they look a dozen years younger than, than any of us. You know, we talk about representation. We become part of these fraternities. And of course, uh, I'll, I'll go there, Greg, Greg. I'll take the bait. You know, the greatest fraternity, Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, um, you know, Charles Drew, Charles Drew was an Omega, right? So the other part of that, I say this to all the individuals who may or may not be listening or who may be listening, who may or may not be part of an NPAC group, Omega or not, Delta or not. It doesn't matter which organization you are. I promise you there is someone within your organization who is a medical doctor. I promise you if you reach out as an undergrad to your advisor, to the graduate chapter in your city, they could put you in touch with someone who's a medical doctor within your organization. I promise you. And so part of it is having the initiative. You know, that's the really in interesting part when we talk about mentorship and all of that. Uh, you know, I'm part of whichever organization. I talk to my grad chap. Next thing I'm sitting down having breakfast or brunch with a medical doctor who looks like me, who understands my organization, we have common language, we could now have a conversation about life. 
and me going to medical school or what does that mean or whatever. It's the opportunities that we take within the sphere where we're in. And I challenge, that's why I always challenge the undergrads. I said, so have you spoken to anybody? And they go, oh, no. I said, well, you're in a frat, you're in a sorority. Have you spoken to the pre-med group? Oh, you know, you go to U of H, you know, there's a medical school here. Have you reached, have you sent an email to a doctor? Just say, hi, my name is Dave. I'm a freshman. I know absolutely nothing about medical school. And I would love to talk to you about medical school. It doesn't have to be this grand formal production. Yeah, it's just that simple. Yeah. Well, I, I made a promise that I would wrap up at a certain time, and uh, I already lied because we're 10 minutes over because I knew that <laughs> we would get we would get knee-deep in, uh, in mentorship in these discussions. But as always, I want to thank you for being here. This was uh, an insightful conversation for me, just hearing a little bit more or not only about the details of mentorship, but how this can um, be done well um, and how it's still pretty easily accessible. And uh, as always, outside of showing up at each other's homes to eat each other's food, uh, I'm going to hold a very a specific uh, time and, uh, and reservation to be able to call you back so we can have some of these discussions uh, a little later on down the line. Anytime, anytime. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.